Peter Gentry. He's Professor of Old Testament Inter Interpretation at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and we're delighted to have him with us, and he'll bring his first presentation this time. I am so delighted. It's such a joy to be with you folks, and uh, an honor and a privilege to come and talk about the covenants from the scriptures. Let's just begin with uh, a word of prayer. Our Father and our God, we bow before you and we praise you and thank you for your gifts to us in Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have chosen uh, chosen us as clay jugs to be your instruments so that the credit and the glory and the honor may go to you and not from ourselves. We cry out today that we may be given insight and understanding by the Holy Spirit. Lord, we, we have not arrived and we want you to correct our insights, our understanding by your word. We thank you that your word is able to correct us. And uh, we long even now for a better understanding than the one that we have today. So we ask for your blessing in Christ's name. Amen. Our uh, brother Steve West from Guelph was uh, talking about the... Uh, the atheists and how they compare Jesus to the tooth fairy. And uh, as he developed that analogy, he noticed a lack of evidence. Well, you may remember that during the Gulf War, Donald Rumsfeld, the Secretary of Defense, said, and I quote, the absence of evidence is not the evidence of absence. And... Uh, they were looking for weapons of mass destruction. And uh, <clears throat> to illustrate this kind of logic, uh, I wanted to tell you about these two archaeologists. One was from Greece and one was from Egypt, and they were arguing over whose civilization was older. So the Greek archaeologist said, well, when we dug up Ephesus, we found copper wires down at the 6th century B.C. level, and that means they had telephones in the 6th century B.C. The guy from Egypt said, well, when we dug up Giza, we, didn't, we were down at the 2000 B.C. level, and we didn't find any wires at all, which means they were wireless in 2000 B.C. <laughs> well, that's your analgesic for the next two hours of pain, so... <laughs> Very simply, uh, Steve and I believe that everyone has a worldview, no matter whether, whether they're conscious of it or not. And one of the elements that is essential to every worldview is a storyline. And we desire to have a Christian view, worldview. And the way in which we want to do that is to make sure that the basic storyline of our worldview is as close as possible to the storyline of Scripture. And uh, this is, uh, as we've developed and grown over the years, we haven't found the storyline of a covenant theology or of dispensational theology as close as it might be 
to the storyline of Scripture. And uh, uh, we have tried to improve on this. I was given a, a, I went to Dallas Theological Seminary. One of my professors, whom I greatly revere, was uh, uh, S. Lewis Johnson, Jr. Uh, he, uh, towards the end of his life, he was um, speaking in conferences among the brethren at, in Toronto, and we were ministering and serving among the brethren. So we had the privilege of giving him hospitality in our home. And uh, we were sitting there one day, and he said, well, you know, Peter, he said, he said, the word covenant is a lot more important in the Bible than dispensation. It was quite a shock for me, but anyway, that uh, kind of started me on the covenants. And um, as, as I studied them, I discovered that they were the key to the plot structure to the storyline of Scripture. Uh, if you watch movies, and I, I assume that you do, every movie has a, has a basic plot to it. It has a storyline. And uh, if you want to find out what that is, you can go to uh, internationalmoviedatabase.com, imdb.com. You can look up any movie, and they will tell you its plot line, of course, unless it's a movie like Napoleon Dynamite, which has no plot line. <laughs> It's a postmodern movie. <laughs> so I don't know what we're going to say to a postmodern world, but the Bible does have a plot line. And uh, uh, up here we can see um, a chart that shows uh, the basic uh, covenants that are there that are in the scriptures. There are actually many covenants in the scriptures, uh, some, of them, uh, some of them important and some of them unimportant. These are the major covenants that God has established with human parties, the covenant with creation in chapters 1 to 3, the covenant with Noah in chapters 6 to 9, the covenant with Abraham in uh, chapters 12, 15, 17, and 22, a lot, uh, there are a number of people, especially uh, some of the, our brothers in the, among the Presbyterians who divide that into two covenants, but I, I see it as one. Um, the covenant at Sinai in Exodus 19 and through 24, which is, uh, which is uh, uh, renewed or actually made afresh on the plains of Moab with Israel because uh, the the first gener generation of Israel was wiped out in the desert. You know, it's very. This actually is a, a demonstration of the grace of God because in, Ex in Exodus 20 it says that God visits the sins of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. But He shows love to thousands of generations. It just says thousands there, but it means thousands of generations, as we saw from Psalm 105 this morning. That's where you let Scripture interpret Scripture. And what we see is that when, the, when they were making the covenant, they hadn't even finished making the covenant. They broke it already. And what happened? God only wiped out one generation, not three or four. You see the grace of God even there. So, 
There was a new Israel, and God had to make the covenant afresh with them in the book of Deuteronomy. It's kind of a supplement to the covenant. And then finally, the covenant with David, which is explained in a number of passages, 2 Samuel 7, where the word covenant isn't, isn't even used, and then other places like Psalm 89 and 2 Samuel 23. And finally, we come in the new covenant, to the new covenant. We don't even have to get to the New Testament before we talk about the new covenant. So it's already there in the Old Testament. Let us also remember, let us also remember that when we talk about our Bible, we use the word the Old Testament and the New Testament. Testament is the Latin word for covenant, see? So we're talking about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Most people don't even know that, but we're all covenant theologians in one sense or another. <clears throat> well, what we may, what we may well ask in literary terms is the plot structure of the Old Testament or even the entire Bible as a single text. And this is extremely important because when I was, I was raised in a Christian home, a very uh, solid, strong Christian home, but the Bible was presented to me as an anthology of texts, as a collection of stories. And I never realized until I was an adult and was studying the scriptures on my own that it's a single text from a single mind. It's not just an anthology of texts. It's not just a collection of books from different human authors. It's a single literary work from a single divine mind. And therefore, in running through all of those books and in some ways independently of those books is a single plot structure. The thesis of our book is that the covenants constitute the framework of the larger story. They are the backbone of the biblical narrative. The biblical story begins with the fact that there is only one God. He has created everything and especially made humankind to rule under him. In this context, God is the center of the universe and we humans find our purpose in having a right relationship to God and to one another. The first man and woman, however, rejected this way. Now, what happens when God is no longer at the center of our universe? Who steps in to take his place? Why, we do. I want to be the center of the universe. Will this work? No, because you want to be there too. So chaos and evil have reigned since the rebellion of Adam and Eve because we no longer had a right relationship with God and did not treat each other as genuinely human. God judged the entire human race and made a new start with Noah. This too ended up in chaos and evil, as is clear from the story of the Tower of Babel. Finally, he made a, a fresh start with Abraham, he would restore, he would restore a creation and a humanity ruined by pride and rebellion by using Abraham and his family as a pilot project. The people of Israel would be an example, a light to the world of what it meant to be properly related to God and to treat each other properly according to the dignity of our humanity. 
We call this the Mosaic Covenant, set forth in Exodus and restated in Deuteronomy. If you study the ancient world, and I'm going to do this for your perspective over here, you, the ancient world was very much like the world that I was born into. It was governed by two superpowers. So uh, in my time, it was the Soviet Union and the United States. And uh, in, in the ancient world, it was Egypt over on this side and Mesopotamia over on this side, the Assyrians and Babylonians. There's a skinny little piece of land about 30 miles wide and 90 miles long that connects those two great superpowers. And this is the backbone of the Internet in the ancient world. And it's called Israel. And so you see God's plan in putting Abraham and his family in Israel, all of the commerce and trade between the two superpowers would pass through this little country. Imagine it's that the city of Toronto is wider than Israel, right? 30, 30 miles wide, 35 miles wide. All of the trade and commerce between the superpowers in the world would pass, you see, through this little country. And as they went through this country, they were supposed to see and be confronted with the with what it means to have a right relationship to God, how to treat each other in truly human ways, and how to be good stewards of the earth's resources. But the people of Israel did not keep the Mosaic Covenant. They were to be blessed for obedience and cursed for disobedience. And they really blew their witness. So God made a covenant with David, and what he decided is that if it couldn't be done by the people as a whole, it could be done by the king as the representative of that people. This is very difficult for Americans because you have a republic and you don't understand a monarchy like we do in Canada. Uh, the queen of England can say, I am England. She stands for the whole country. And when she says we, she speaks for the whole country. And uh, if you don't, if this is this is federal headship. You know, uh, this is covenantal. All kingship in the ancient Near East is covenantal. So uh, God said, "Well, maybe. Well, now we're going to now we're going to make a covenant with David because the king will do what the." in himself what the nation has failed to do, as a whole to do. But you know the story of the Davidic kingship. It, everything seems to be going down the tubes rather quickly. Let me share with you a limerick. I hope it's here. I just thought of this. I had to have it on my computer here. Uh, hopefully I can find it. Most things are lost on my computer. God's plan made a hopeful beginning, but man spoiled his chances by sinning. We trust that the story will end in great glory, but at present the other side's winning. So, this is, this is largely the story of the Bible. And uh, that's why in the end, Long before you come to the New Testament, the Bible starts talking about a new covenant 
in which not only will the divine partner be faithful, but the human partner will be faithful too. Now you see what I've done. I've basically given you the plot line of the whole Bible. And it doesn't matter what book you drop yourself into, what chapter you drop yourself into, what verse you drop yourself into. You know exactly where you are with the 400-word summary of the whole story. And I could give many, many examples of this. For example, the book of Jeremiah. Let's look at Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 2. One of the, one of the books that is an introduction to the Old Testament says that the biggest prophecy is Isaiah. Well, they obviously haven't read the Bible in Hebrew because the biggest prophecy is by Jeremiah. And you don't count things by chapters, you count things by words when you have to read them in Hebrew. So this book is, is the longest of our three prophets, Jeremiah, and then Ezekiel, and then Isaiah. Isaiah is the shortest of the three big prophets. But we can summarize this big book in four words, the Babylonians are coming. If you want it, if you want it in a soundbite, it's bad news. And look in verse, chapter 4, verse 2. Let me see here. Maybe I'm in the wrong spot here. Chapter 4, verse 1. If you return, O Israel, declares the Lord, you should return to me. If you remove your detestable ways from before me and do not waver and swear as the Lord lives in truth, in justice and in righteousness, the nations will be blessed by him. And they will boast in him. Now you can't, what he's, he, he's got a, a program. The program is God is going to judge his people for breaking the covenant. And it's part of the agreement. You have to read it in Deuteronomy 28. It's over 60 verses long. There's 15 verses of good, of blessings, and there's over 45 verses of curses. I don't know why they agreed to this covenant, but they did. And uh, if you've ever been in the grocery store and seen a child with a, a, a parent with a disobedient child, you know, they keep threatening them. If you do that one more time, I'm going to. And after they said that 15 times, you wonder, when are they going to come through on their threats? Well, God, God is a God who keeps his word. And he finally came through on the threats. But you see, God is always, the, the end of the story is not the bad news. God is going to restore his people in the end. The Old Testament ends on a good note, the promise of restoration. 
And he wants his people to come back to him. Why does, why? If you look in this verse, it says, if you, you should come back, if you swear by me in truth, in justice and righteousness, those are actually sound bites for the whole Torah. You read the book, you'll see that those are actually sound bites for all of the instructions in the Torah. The nations will be blessed in him. Where do you get that in the Bible? That's the covenant that God made with Abraham, you see. That's why God chose Abraham in the first place. Not so that he could pour out all those blessings on the Jews and they could keep all those blessings for themselves, but so that God could save the whole world through Abram's family, through the seed of Abram, right? Which, which eventually comes down to Jesus Christ. Because there's only one faithful seed who manages to do this. So this is what I mean. You plop yourself into any book, any chapter, any verse. If you don't know the sequence of the covenants and how they relate to the, each other, you won't understand where you are in the story. But it doesn't matter whether you plop yourself into the Song of Solomon or into the history part. It's the covenants that will help you put the storyline together. <clears throat> what I want to do uh, in most of the time that I have here is to focus on the covenant, uh, uh, the covenant at creation. And we're going to start by looking at the covenant with Noah. Uh, this is in Genesis 6 through 9. So let's uh, look at that text. So uh, in verses one, in Genesis six, verses one to four, we see that bad things are happening in the world. And in verse five, God saw that the evil of mankind was great in the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. And God was sorry that he had made man in the earth. And he consoled his, he, he was pained to his heart. And God said, I will wipe mankind which I have created from a, on the face of the earth. From man unto animal, to the creeping things, to the birds of the sky, because I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Whether or not a covenant per se is entailed in Genesis 1 to 3 is debated. The first occurrence, the first occurrence of the, in the Bible of the word covenant is in Genesis 6 verse 18, where, uh, we read, and I will establish my covenant with you. So this refers to the covenant with Noah. God says to Noah, I will establish my covenant with you. Consequently, Genesis 6 to 9 and the covenant with Noah will be examined first, and only then we will look at the issues raised by Genesis 1 to 3. First, we need to consider the context in which God makes this statement to Noah and the meaning of the language used in this text. In the previous verse, 
God informs Noah that he is going to destroy all life on the earth, all human and animal life in the entire world. The means of destruction will be a cataclysmic event. I chose that word carefully because in, it comes from the Greek word kataklusmos, which means flood. A cataclysmic event, waters, floodwaters covering the entire earth. God instructs Noah, however, to build a big box. And you need to remember this. Uh, Noah didn't know what a boat was. And the word ark is, means, means in English simply a box. God told him to make a big box, which will be the means of rescue and deliverance from the destruction of the flood. The earlier part of chapter 6 explains why God had apparently given up on the human race and decided upon such a cataclysmic course of action. In verse 5, we are told, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race on the earth had become, and every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil all the time. A bit further on, in verses 11 to 13, we read, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. Verse 5 describes the human situation as bad, evil, or wicked, and traces this to the condition of the human heart in Hebrew, the heart is not uh, has very little to do with Valentine's Day. It's the place where we feel, but mostly where we think and make our decisions. It stands for our feeling, our thinking, and our will, where we make decisions and plans. In verses 11 to 13, two terms in particular stand out, corrupt and violence. The first word occurs three times. And the second word occurs twice so that the cumulative effect is pronounced. It's difficult for the reader to miss the message here. The term corrupt shows that a beautiful and good situation is now ruined, spoiled, and twisted. Frequently, not many hours after opening the presents on Christmas Day, children manage to ruin and spoil beautiful and intricate toys so that they are damaged in appearance and function. The term violence is a word that refers specifically to social violence and conditions in human society where social justice is lacking. The evil of the human heart resulting in corruption and social violence brings a response from God according to verses 6 and 7. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. The flood, then, is a divine judgment in response to the evil of the human heart and the resultant corruption and violence. Before uh, further consideration of God's covenant with Noah, it is necessary to acquire a better grasp uh, of covenant-making in the culture of the ancient Near East and in the Bible. What is normally involved in initiating a covenant or a treaty? The events described in Genesis 21, verses 22 to 34, 
provide an excellent example of what is entailed in covenant-making in the ancient Near East. This narrative concerns the king of Gerar, a city in the south of Canaan, just west of Beersheba, who makes a covenant or treaty with Abraham. The the agreement between the parties resolves a dispute over water rights relating to the well of Beersheba, which, as you know, means the well of the oath. But this is how it got its name, you see. Four features characterize this treaty and, in fact, are normative or standard of covenants in general. Uh, In this story, we see, number one, that a covenant does not necessarily begin or initiate a relationship. It can formalize in binding and legal terms an agreement between parties who have developed a relationship before the covenant is made. Abimelech and Abraham already have a relationship together. When the covenant is made, Abimelech appeals to this already established understanding between them by speaking of the loving kindness he has shown Abraham in the past. Verse 23, chapter 21, verse 23, he appeals to the chesed, the loving kindness he has shown Abraham in the past. Chesed is a covenant word. It, it refers to fulfilling your obligations in a covenant relationship. A covenant relationship is, can be between equal parties. Most of the covenant relationships in the Bible are between unequal parties, a greater person and a lesser person. And the chesed is the requirement uh, of the greater person to fulfill their obligation or their duty to the lesser party. And uh, the fact that the chesed is the fulfillment of that. An example is uh, when Jacob was dying, he asked uh, Joseph to put his hand under his thigh and to swear for him, swear that he would, he said, swear that you will do this chesed for me that you will you will not bury my bones in Egypt, but you will bury them in Canaan. So here we have a lesser party, which in this case is the father because he's dying. The stronger party is the strapping young son. And the chesed is the promise to bury his bones in Canaan. And so uh, the fulfillment of that obligation is what loving kindness entails. As we will see, it is true that covenant does specify a new level to this relationship, but the parties have had dealings in the past. It's only in Las Vegas that people get married and haven't had a relationship already in the past. Two, there is conventional language for initiating covenants or treaties, which is standard in the Old Testament. The standard expression for initiating a covenant in Hebrew is to cut a covenant. Well, how and why this expression arose, we we will see in a moment. Thirdly, a covenant gives binding and legal status to a relationship by means of a formal and solemn ceremony. Covenant making always involves a public and solemn ceremony. This is why it's wrong to elope because uh, marriage involves a covenant, and covenants are never private. They're always public, and they're always ceremonies. 
Just, I just said that so that you'll know that not all of my teaching is impractical. <laughs> there are practical applications. Number four, covenant making involves a commitment or oath or promise and frequently signs and witnesses. Here the parties of the treaty solemnly swear to the agreement. While an oath is an important part of the covenant, it is not necessarily the covenant itself. In these ceremonies in the ancient Near East, animals are slaughtered and sacrificed. Each animal is cut in two, and the halves are laid facing each other. This act, Then the parties of the treaty walk, the, the blood kind of drains into the middle, uh, you know, there are a lot of, a lot of the Bible is sort of R-rated, so you'll have to be prepared for someone talking on the Old Testament. And you take off your sandals and you splash through the blood. And what you're saying is, if I fail to keep my obligation or my promise, may I be cut in two like these two dead animals, like this dead animal. So it's kind of a serious thing. We'd have less divorce if we did this today. <laughs> The oath or promise, then, involves bringing a curse upon oneself for violating the treaty. This is, this is why the expression to cut a covenant is the conventional or standard language for initiating a covenant in the Old Testament. Many other covenants and treaties are recorded in the Bible. As examples, we can mention the men of Jabesh, Gilead, and Nachash, the Ammonite, 1 Samuel 11, two covenants between David and Jonathan in 1 Samuel 18 and 23, one between David and Abner, 2 Samuel 3, David and Israel, 2 Samuel 3, Ahab of Israel and Ben-Hadad of Syria, 1 Kings 20, and between Jehoiada the high priest and King Joash of Judah, 2 Kings 11. While the components and also the nature and status of the parties differ and the language varies somewhat, in each case a covenant concluded involves a commitment or promise solemnized by oath in which agreement and level of relationship between the parties is specified. The first occurrence or occurrences of the, of the word covenant, it's the word berit, in the Old Testament is significant. The first, the word appears first in the flood narrative. There are actually eight occurrences one is chapter 6, verse 18, and the other seven are in chapter 9, verse 9, verse 11, verse 12, verse 13, verse 15, verse 16, and verse 17. In four instances, God speaks of confirming or establishing a covenant with Noah, and that's Genesis 6, 18, 9, 9, 9, 11, and 9, 17. The construction in Hebrew is Hakim Berith. The remaining four occurrences have to do with the sign of the covenant and remembering the covenant. So, when we consider the, cov the covenant that God made with Noah and his descendants, we can see right away that the standard expression or language for covenant making is not here. It's lacking. Nowhere in this narrative do we read of God cutting a covenant. So the question that we have to ask ourselves as we're reading the Hebrew Bible 
is why is the language different here and what does it signify? Well, I did an exhaustive and exhausting study of all instances of the word covenant in the Bible, and uh, this revealed a completely consistent usage. The construction to cut a covenant always refers to covenant initiation or making a covenant, while the expression to establish a covenant refers to a covenant partner fulfilling an obligation or upholding a promise in a covenant that has been initiated previously. In other words, the expression hekimbereth, to establish a covenant, means to make good on one's promise. I like, I use, uh, I use that, uh, to come good on your promise or to uphold a covenant. I try to avoid the using the English word establish. The word establish is a good word to translate the Hebrew word hakim, but there's a problem caused by English. If you say the word establish in English, it can mean that you're building something for the first time, but it can also mean that you're fixing something that has fallen into ruins. You're building it up. And uh, so uh, the English word establish can actually be confusing because this expression, Hakim Barith, is never used for building a covenant uh, for the first time, but always of upholding a promise that you've already made. Uh, let's look at a couple of places where this can be illustrated. The difference in the expressions can be illustrated in the case of the covenant with Abraham. In Genesis 15, God promises to Abraham land and his promises to Abraham of land and seed which were given earlier in chapter 12 are formalized in a covenant so we could we could sort of look at Genesis chapter 12 as the engagement and we could look at chapter 15 as the wedding day yeah you have in chapter 12 the giving of the promises and in chapter 15 the making of the covenant. These promises that were given earlier are now enshrined in a, in the, in a, in a solemn ceremony that has legal status, that it has binding status. Notice in chapter 15, verse 18, we have the normal or standard terminology in the Hebrew text. It says, on that day, the Lord cut a covenant with Abram. Later, in chapter 17, God upholds his covenant promise. In verse 7, 19, and 21, we do not have the expression to cut a covenant, but we have the expression, hekimbereth, so here, God is bringing to personal experience in the life of someone who is already a covenant partner the fulfillment of his promise entailed in the covenant initiated previously in chapter 15. And part of that, 
God, God said, I'm going to make you a great nation. And, you know, a great nation has to start somewhere. It needs at least one baby. And so, um, after 25, after a long period of time, and the interval is significant because what happens in Genesis 16? The story of Hagar, right? Where they try to work things out in their own, in their own strength, where they, Abraham the schemer, uh, has his own strategy. And so this doesn't, uh, God waits a long time till he gets that out of his system. And then God says, now I'm going to uphold my promise and you're going to, and Sarah's going to have the baby in one year. So you can see that he's not making a covenant at that point, but he's upholding the promise that he made earlier and he's bringing it to fulfillment in the experience of his covenant partner. So that's, that's what this expression means. Uh, let's quickly look at um, Jeremiah 34 because I want you to I want you to see this with your own eyes. You should never believe anything that Peter Gentry says. You, you should always study the scriptures to see whether these things are true. You see, that's how that's how the Bereans treated the Apostle Paul, and and they were they were considered to be very noble for it, right? Uh, the reason we're looking at this passage is that a, a few, uh, about a year or two before we got started on our book, a book came out by Paul Williamson, an Australian who's in Australia, uh, called Sealed with an Oath. And uh, he doesn't accept the distinction that, that I'm making between cut a covenant and establish a covenant. And Jeremiah 34 is the strongest, his strongest argument for destroying the theory that I presented. By the way, this isn't Peter Gentry's theory. This was already stated by an Italian Jew called Umberto Casuto in the early 1920s, um, by uh, Jacob Milgram, who is so pedantic a scholar that he wrote over three and a half thousand pages on Leviticus, and uh, and uh, I'm not the only person who has, has, uh, who has uh, pr- proposed this, but I have uh, provided a lot, 70 pages of evidence in the back of the book Kingdom Through Covenant for you to peruse on this topic. So, uh, what's happening here, what's happening here is that uh, the Jewish people have have uh, enslaved fellow Israelis. They've, they've enslaved fellow Israelis, and this is contrary to the Torah. And so uh, the prophet speaks to them in verse 8, the word which came to Jeremiah from Yahweh after the, after the king, Zedekiah, had cut a covenant with the people who were in Jerusalem, to proclaim to them emancipation. So you can see here that we have the normal expression to cut a covenant. They made a covenant. And what was the purpose of this covenant? To free all their slaves. It's explained in verse 9. So that everyone would send each his male slave and each his female slave, his Hebrew slave, 
uh, male Hebrew and female Hebrew, free and uh, not using them as slaves, all right? Then in verse 10, all the, all the, the big shots, this is my own translation, so, uh, all the chiefs, all the people uh, who entered into the covenant, there's a different expression for making a covenant. You can, you can cut a covenant or you can enter into a covenant. Who had entered into the covenant to send each his male slave and each his female slave away free by not using them as slaves anymore. They obeyed or they heard and they sent them away. Now we see in verse 11 that they renege on the covenant. Do you know this word, renege? Okay. I sometimes, when I'm in Southern Seminary, I don't even know if I'm communicating. I, I feel, as a Canadian and as a man from the past, uh, I, <laughs> talking to our Napoleon Dynamiters, uh, <laughs> I have to check and see if I'm coming across here. Now, in verse 11, it says, uh, they returned, you see, afterwards, and they brought the slaves back, you see, the male slaves and the female slaves, which they had sent away free. And um, they subdued them for male slaves and female slaves. So after sending them free, they said, okay, change my mind, you got to come back. What a, what a bummer that was. All right. Now, verse 12, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from, from the Lord just in case you missed that, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord. There's a lot of repetition in the Bible because we're slow learners, and, and that's why I'm in the Old Testament. <laughs> so, um, thus says the Lord God of Israel, I cut a covenant with your fathers in the day I brought them out of the land of Egypt. So what is he talking about here? The Mosaic Covenant, right? The Mosaic Covenant. Uh uh, I, I brought them out of Egypt, out of the house of slaves, saying, at the end of seven years, you shall send away each his brother, who is a Hebrew, who will not, who is sold to you, and your, your male slaves, six years, they will serve you six years, and then you will send them out free, you see. But your fathers did not obey me, and they did not bend their ear. Okay, and verse 15, you reneged, you see, today, and you, well, sorry, you, you repented. The word return can mean a number of things. You returned today, and you did what was right in the, uh, in my eyes by proclaiming freedom, each for his neighbor. And you cut a covenant before me in the house which is called by my name. So there's the, there's the expression again. But you returned and you defiled my name and you brought back each his servant and each, each his male servant and each his female servant, which you sent away free. And you subdued them to be your slaves, male slaves and female slaves. Therefore, thus says the Lord, you did not obey me by proclaiming emancipation, each for his brother and each for his neighbor. Here I am proclaiming for you 
Emancipation, declares the Lord, to the sword, to the pestilence, and to the famine. What, what, what you need to understand is the entire Pentateuch, the, the Torah, the covenant that God made with his people is based on retributive justice, which means every, the, there is a penalty for every wrongdoing, and that penalty will match exactly what the wrongdoing was. So uh, if, an, if you punch out someone's eye, you lose an eye, you see? A, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, burn for a burn, bruise for a bruise. This is the most wonderful and exalted system of jurisprudence in the world, that the penalty only goes as far as and not more than the crime committed. If you were my students, I would make you read all the law codes in the ancient world, the laws of Eshnunna, the old Hittite laws, the laws of Hammurabi, the uh, the code of Eshnunna, the laws of Lipit Ishtar. We, we have like 10 or 11 law codes from the ancient world. And what you see there is these law codes favor the rich and uh, bring penalties on the poor. So if, you, if you're if you a rich man and you commit adultery, you can pay a fine and get away with it. But if you're a poor man and you commit adultery with a rich man's wife, he's going to mutilate your face, you see. Yeah, they laugh too when they read that. <laughs> so you can see what a wonderful system it is that the penalty always matches perfectly exactly what was done wrong and is never more than or never less than the damage that was caused. And this is one rule for the rich and the poor, you see. And so God says, I like your system. You're sending these people to the to famine and sword and, and uh, to, what did he say here? Famine, sword, pestilence and famine. So I like your system. I'm going to hand you over to this kind of freedom too. There is sarcasm in the Bible. Yahweh is sarcastic here, and he applies retributive justice. Now look at the next sentence here. Uh, <clears throat> I will give you to trembling before all the kingdoms of the of the earth. I will give the men who entered, who passed through into the covenant. There's another expression. Now look at this. Who did not establish the words of the covenant. It should be, I don't know what you think, but it should be obvious that this this expression means they didn't uphold their promise. They didn't come good on their word. So every time up to this point, they've used the expression cut a covenant to refer to the actual covenant making, and now they use the expression establish the covenant because they didn't come good on their promise. So I don't know what you think, but Paul Williamson says this is the strongest case against my argument, but I think it's a very good example for what I'm arguing. Anyway, you can always study all the cases yourself and see what conclusion you come to. Uh, when we wrote the book, there was a little bit of a problem with Ezekiel 16. That was po pointed out with Doug Moo. It's always, it's always wonderful to have other brothers show you your faults. So I went back and I spent three more months studying Ezekiel 16 and actually came to a different understanding of that text, which uh, support, which uh, just happened to support the distinction. 
And then I studied all the Hebrew in the Dead Sea Scrolls and found that the distinction actually holds there too. So uh, this is just uh, uh, two different expressions in the Hebrew language. Um, so in summary, uh, when we see in Genesis 6 through 9 that God is, is upholding a covenant, that means he's, he's not making something new with Noah. Do you see that? He's not making a covenant with Noah. He's upholding a covenant that has already been made. And what could that be? Well, I think the only thing that it can be is uh, referring to the act of creation itself. So when God says that he is confirming or establishing his covenant with Noah, he is saying that his commitment initiated previously at creation to care for and preserve, provide for, and rule over all that he has made, including the blessings and ordinances that he gave to Adam and Eve and their family, are now to be with Noah and his descendants. This can be further supported. By the way, this is, an, this is, I think, a good argument, a strong argument, but we don't rest even half of our, our understanding on this argument. It can be further supported by noting the parallels between Noah and Adam and between the covenant terms given to Noah and the ordinances given to Adam and his family. Um, I think what we could do is, this would be on page 13, I think. Let's see if we can come up with that chart. There we go. A picture is worth a thousand words, so you see how rapid my progress is. Now, Yeah, that's right. Uh, I, I thought you had it right there. Yeah, that's correct. There, let's see, that's it right there. What I want to talk about here now is parallels between Adam and Noah and Adam and between the flood story and the creation story. In terms of literary techniques, we note four things, key words, dominant ideas, parallel sequences of actions, and similar themes clearly link the Noah narrative of Genesis 6 through 9 to the creation narratives of Genesis 1 and 2. First of all, the flood story is presented as a new creation. Just as God ordered the original heavens and earth out of the chaotic deep or ocean, so here God orders the present heavens and earth out of the chaotic floodwaters. I hope you understand the creation story. In verse 2 it says the earth was at that time without form and void. Darkness was upon the face of the deep. The, the word deep means a big ocean. So you are to imagine one, it's a huge watery chaos. It, it has no form, it has no void, it's chaotic and it's watery. And out of that chaotic, watery mess, God creates the world as we know it. This is exactly what happens at the flood. Out of this chaotic, watery mess, God creates the world anew. In Genesis 8, verse 1, God, we see that God causes a wind to pass over the waters of the flood that are covering the entire earth, which reminds one of the creation narrative where the Spirit of God hovers, hovers over the waters of the original chaotic deep. 
By the way, it's the same word in Hebrew. It's ruach. And um, so you have to decide in any context, does it mean breath, wind, or spirit? Now, I do believe that it means the Spirit of God in Genesis 1 and that it just means a wind in Genesis 8, but that doesn't prevent you from uh, linking the two. Just as the Spirit hovers over the chaotic deep in Genesis 1, so the wind is working over, the wind of God is working over the, the floodwaters. In the creation narrative, God gathers the water together and the dry land emerges. Then he commands the earth to bring forth vegetation. After the flood, the dry land emerges as the waters subside and the earth brings forth vegetation as we see when the dove returns with an olive beak, olive leaf in her beak. These parallels indicate that after the flood, we have a new beginning like the first beginning. Now, there are a lot more parallels in the book, but I'm going to just uh, go on to talk about Noah as a new Adam. Second, Noah is presented in the narrative as a new Adam. The blessing and commission that is given to Noah is the same one that is given to Adam. So if you look at Genesis 9, verse 1, you see this is exactly what God says to Adam. Genesis 9, verse 1, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and increase and fill the earth. So that's word for word out of Genesis 1, what he says to Adam. In this way, the narrator portrays Noah as a new Adam. I don't know if it, 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 this may be a new way of talking for some of you, but you have to read the New Testament carefully. Some, some people think that Jesus is the second Adam, but the, the New Testament never says that. He says, it says he's the second man and he's the last Adam. So you have to pay attention to those terms particularly. There are other Adams between, between Adam and Jesus Christ, but Jesus is the second man because Adam was the first man over the first creation and Jesus is the first man in the new creation. That's what Easter is all about because when God raised Jesus from the death, dead, that was the beginning of the new creation. The new creation is not like the old creation. In the old creation, first God makes the place and then he makes the people to live there. In the new creation, first God makes the people, and then he makes the place where they're going to live. That's why the New Testament doesn't talk about the land very much, and it worries the dispensationalists. But it's powerful because Easter is the beginning of God's new world. That's how powerful it is. We've lost that sense, I think, today. Yes, Jesus is alive today, and that is wonderful for me and helpful for me. Yes, it's going to comfort me in my trials that he will someday lift me out of these. But the new creation has already begun. <clears throat> and uh, we aren't going to go through these in detail, but I've put them uh, up on the screen. Um, we have be fruitful and increase in number in Genesis 128, we have this in, uh, in verse 1 of chapter 9 and verse 7. Did you notice that it's repeated in verse 7? Because these are the bookends that hold the, the, the terms of the covenant together. So uh, the repetition is a 
figure of speech called an inclusio or an envelope device. It's like the bookends and it's like parentheses. It holds this text together. There's a beginning and ending. So it's repeated. The fear of you is put on the animals. In Genesis 1.28, God calls humans to rule over the earth and over the animals. Now he gives us the fear of humans are put on the animals in order to help us in this task. So God is giving to Noah the commission that he gave to Adam, but it's adjusted for a fallen world. In uh, Genesis 1.29, the plants are given for food, and here we have the animals given for food. Very clear in the Bible. Uh, if you want to be a vegetarian, you can argue that for a number of reasons, but never from the Bible. So, uh, Paul, who was totally politically incorrect, calls that a doctrine of demons, all right? First Timothy chapter four, verse one. So, if you, if you need some, uh, well, there's no political correctness in the Bible anyway, so. Isaiah 46, listen to me, you rebels, you stubborn hearted. All right. Don't eat meat with the blood. And then we have, we have, uh, we, we can't eat the blood because this is a symbol of life and only God is the Lord of life. So even though we're allowed to eat animals, we must acknowledge God as Lord of life. And then we have the, we see that, we see a restatement of the image of God that we're made, we're, uh, we can't, we can't willfully take another person's life because they are made as the image of God. And so we see that Noah is uh, represented here as a new Adam. Well, on this cliffhanging note, we will end. And um, when you're ready for the postprandial snooze, um, we will talk about the covenant uh, with creation in Genesis 1, and we will see if there is any evidence in the text to talk about a covenant that God made there. Thank you very kindly.